Welcome to The Gabby Ree Show, where we break down the complex worlds of health, fitness, family, business, and relationships with the world's leading experts. I'm your host, Gabby Reese, and I'm here to simplify these topics and give you practical takeaways that you can start using today. We all know that living a healthy, balanced life isn't always easy. Let's try working on managing life a little better and have some fun along the way. Because after all, life is just one big experiment and we're all doing our best. One of the first things we ask a patient is what their goals are. So it is very reasonable to have an accurate and honest assessment. Can you achieve this goal regardless of what you do? Mm. Can you achieve this goal with any therapy or medication, if it might be indicated? And can you achieve it without that? So depending on what the answers to those questions are, and also depending on how important that goal is to the patient, that can make them a better or a worse candidate for uh, something like hormone replacement. The phenomenon that you described of men not wanting to check or men not seeking help, partly because they are very masculine and they don't want to be perceived as needing help, that's what I call the number one thing harming men's health. Because you don't know what you don't know. And at the very least, you need to take your machine. And again, we're just organic machines. Take it in for preventive maintenance and at least get a comprehensive check of what's going on. Because fixing something now can prevent something catastrophic from happening in the future. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. My guest today is Dr. Kyle Gillette. And this is a one of two shows that we're releasing today, this Monday. And we are doing a show all on women's hormone health with Dr. Mary Claire Haver. And this show is the one all on men's hormone health with Dr. Kyle Gillette. I have visited with Dr. Kyle Gillette and I am just giving you the warning. You're probably listening to this on a walk, exercising, in the gym, in the car, but at some point you might want a pen and paper. Dr. Kyle is one of the smartest, informative people in the shortest period of time that I've had the pleasure of interviewing him. I have interviewed him before and we get into it. We talk about male puberty. When is a good time to start checking your blood? What happens if you did a lot of the wrong things when you were younger? And what can you do now? What should you be looking for? Is testosterone really all that? Because we're, you know, we're always culturally kind of focusing on the king male hormone, but is it really? And we get in behind, you know, what somebody needs to do to make the whole system work together. Does alcohol really impact your overall health, your hormone health? Does your gut impact it? What about baldness? Is there anything you can do about baldness? Libido. So we get into all of this. He is a wealth of knowledge. And like so many of my guests, what I really respect and appreciate besides his ability to solve problems and support people where they are is the constant reminder of the real pillars of health, nutrition, movement, sleep, connection, and on and on. I mean, I know that several shows like mine, we beat that to death because it's the truth. And the other thing that is really so beautiful about Dr. Kyle Gillette is his desire to remind males that it's okay to get help 
and to take a look under the hood. I think so many times we actually don't support men and their health quest as much as we do women. And that's not to say that women don't bear, you know, different things. We have a whole other set of complications. But one thing I think we know how to do is sort of say like, oh, what is that? And I don't feel my best. And with men, sometimes they sort of push it aside and maybe brave through it. And maybe there's so many little small things that they can do to not only have, you know, sort of more high performance and an enjoyable time while they're here, but also, you know, go through the later parts of their life with higher performance, more muscle, more libido, more energy, and just live a life that has a ton of vitality. So, like I said, grab something to write some of this down, and you may need to re-listen to some of it. And I really hope you enjoy our conversation with Dr. Kyle Gillette. Dr. Gillette, welcome. Thank you for coming to the house again. I really, I was, I didn't, I can just say this up the top of the show. We thought, we, I thought we were doing this uh, digitally and then I had the luxury that you're here in person. So thank you. It means a lot. Absolutely. My pleasure. So let's dive right in because what we're doing is we're doing a male counterpart to sort of a female show. And what I always say to people though, is like, even if you're male, I think you should listen to the female show. So if you have a daughter or a sister or a girlfriend or a partner or a mom, you have a, a bigger understanding. And I think the same thing for women. I think there's a lot to learn on both sides, but I'm only going to harass you. Last time I, I harassed you a little bit about women and you're really, even though you have female patients, you really talk about male hormones. And the magic word always is testosterone. And I think, I feel like it's been oversimplified and, and you were saying just a second ago that more isn't always better. So let's, let's just start there. Let's start with what is testosterone? How did it get such an important role in the language of hormone and men's health and men's virility? And, and then, you know, we can go from there. Yeah. So testosterone is the main androgen. So you have a couple different classes of sterile hormones. These are cholesterol based. Vitamin D is actually a cholesterol-based hormone. But on androgens, you have testosterone, DHT, and DHEA sulfate, and others. Testosterone is not the most androgenic DHT is, but there's nothing special about testosterone. It binds the same exact androgen receptor as DHT and DHEA. It does not bind it as strong as DHT, but it binds it stronger than DHEA sulfate. Ironically enough, the androgen receptor is on the X chromosome. So males only have one of them. Yeah. So depending on how sensitive that androgen receptor is in that individual, and so males, you can thank your mother or one of her X chromosomes for whatever androgen receptor sensitivity you inherited. Is there, and we're, we'll get into the lifestyle component of it, but I mean, obviously there's things we can do to dull that signal, but you're saying also on some genetic level, we the signal is kind of preset to be a certain type of sensitivity and then our lifestyle either keeps it or tar starts to tarnish it? Correct. So the way to think about that is you have sensitivity and density. Mm. So the androgen receptor is um, active in the cytoplasm of a cell. So whether it's your muscle cell, your hair cell, your prostate cell, even glandular breast tissue, including in males, 
you have the um, the density or the number of androgen receptors that are not kind of like put away by what's called heat shock proteins. Those are in the cytoplasm of the cell. So if you have 200, this is just an example, mm -hmm. then you are going to have more androgen receptor gene trans transcription, even at the same level of testosterone and DHT as somebody that has 100. So as you mentioned, lifestyle, heat shock proteins, heat and cold exposure, stress, uh, you know, winning an event, mm -hmm. but also things like tadalafil or L-carnitine can affect the density. The sensitivity of the androgen receptor, that's something that you're just born with and that will never change. It's similar to, so it's something called CAG repeats mm -hmm. or trinucleotide repeats. There's other pathologies that are similar. If you have complete androgen sensitivity, it's a syndrome called AIS. You have an X and a Y chromosome, but you present completely as a female because you're not you lack any sensitivity to any androgen. You can actually have very high testosterone levels, but you're not sensitive to them. What, what does that look like? How does that show up then in, a, in the 3D world? What happens if somebody is going through that? Yeah, so it can present a few ways. Occasionally, you find out during childhood, but it is possible that a child that is born with complete androgen sensitivity, which is AIS, would present as female, perhaps with a few phenotypic changes, mm -hmm. and this individual's um, not going to be fertile. So they're going to have what's called undescended testes without going too much into a rabbit trail. Sure. Sometimes you can have such low sensitivity to androgens that it's hard to tell. To bring that back into like the normal spectrum of androgen sensitivity, it's similar to a disease called Huntington's disease, mm -hmm. um, which you also have CAG repeats. The more repeats, the more severe the disease because the protein doesn't function because it can't fold right. Another similar disease is fragile X syndrome, which is another X-linked. Um, technically, androgen sensitivity is X-linked. Okay. Normal repeats is about 19. There's something called a reference genome, which is basically just average. But depending on what country you're born in, some countries have an average of 17. Some countries have an average of 28. So there's a pretty wide variation. Normal is considered between about 14 and... Uh, 30 CAG Wait, what do you repeats. mean it's different per, like in different countries? What it, um, the average can be different. So depending, yeah. on, depending on the maternal heritage or your ancestry so far back, there is a different amount of CAG repeats expected if you're from that area. Oh, that's interesting. For example, I think the average number of CAG repeats in Zambia is 17. So where would it be high? Like, give me an example of, is it a place that maybe has been, is sort of more untouched by mixing with other races and it's a, it has a longer lineage straight back that they can find or how, that's just, I've never even heard that. That's amazing. Possibly. I believe the country with the highest number of average CAG repeats. So the least sensitive androgen receptor mm -hmm. is Romania, but that does you wouldn't think that. Yeah. I, so I'm not sure what it's linked to okay. um, other than ancestry of the maternal lineage happened to having more repeats. And this is where it kind of like uh, deviates from science a little bit. Why is the number of CAG repeats increasing? So why are males becoming, well, actually females as well, becoming less and less sensitive to androgens as time goes on? The prevailing theory, which I mostly agree with, is that if you're more sensitive to androgens and you uh, have a lower risk threshold 
then you're more likely to volunteer to go to the front lines of a war mm -hmm. and more likely to pass away in an early age. For example, World War One and World War II. We know there was a lot of genetic bottlenecking with many different organisms, but humans were likely one of those as well. So what it, when you say it's showing up for men and women that we have less of this, it's because we haven't been in these environments, these stressful environments where we've needed to have this and it's an adaptation or why do you think that is? It's likely natural selection. So oh. individuals that are very sensitive to androgens are probably more likely to volunteer or be chosen to go to the front line oh, in a war and they pass away they're before gone. they're able to reproduce. So this is something that's, Ooh, that's like, kind of sad. It's been, it? I yeah. mean, it, no one wants, you heard my daughter just say too, like she has to get volunteer hours and she's like, I don't really want to. So that's what we're talking about. Yeah. And a lot of this is theoretical, but it would be interesting to see, at least in modern day, you look at 18, 19, 20 year old recruits that are serving on the front line in a war zone mm -hmm. and seeing how sensitive to androgens they are compared to another cohort. That's interesting. So let's start, let's actually start with puberty and, and young men, and we'll, we'll kind of work our way through maybe some hormone, the hormonal story of, of what men have to go through. You know, I even talked to somebody who is a practicing vegetarian, his whole business, I found, you know, found him to be incredibly informed and reasonable, um, Simon Hill. And he did sort of make this kind of little window where that there was information that maybe a male going through puberty was going, it was not maybe going to serve their long-term growth and benefits by being vegetarian or vegan. And, I, and I'm not here to get dogmatic about how people want to eat. I don't care. I'm just here to try to get, you know, the most scientific information. And I know that's how you communicate, but maybe we can, we can explain a little bit what just happens, what hormones, what changes are happening in a young man, because there's actually sort of two puberties, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. And so maybe we can just share what happens from a boy to the, to, well, first puberty is actually fascinating. Let's talk about that. Yeah, certainly. Uh, so as a lot of people know, um, one of the main reasons why I went into medicine is a birth to death, being able to provide prenatal care and give optimal quality of prenatal care when the human is in the uterus. So I suppose that's kind of like the beginning of the first puberty, and then it continues the first three months of life. So there's a lot of reasons for things like baby acne, and a lot of people are familiar around three months of age the baby hair is lost and then kind of the, the new hair comes in. And one of my theories is the, the changes that you can see during that three-month period often happen later on in life as well, which is interesting because you can actually see like recession of hair in male pattern baldness areas, even at two to three months of age. That's not a direct correlation, but it's certainly something that I do think it's correlated. But during that first three months, you have a surge of hormones, including androgens. And it is no different than puberty that happens in the adolescent time where you do have things like acne develop and you do have um, swelling and growth of the genitals as well. Mm -hmm. And of course, this happens in both males and females, but it's interesting in males because as our mutual friend Andrew Huberman has pointed out, estrogen is what masculinizes the brain. And in males, testosterone converts to estrogen, which then kind of secondarily masculinizes the brain. So the ratio of testosterone to DHT to estrogen is very important. And it's not necessarily, you know, more of one way is better. Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, I, I don't want to say it's too late for my kids and plus they're not boys, but let's just say someone is considering having a baby and then, you, you know, this child's a few months old. Is there, besides some of the obvious, as far as, you know, getting rest, continuing to move, eating healthy foods. And then once the baby's born, if they have the opportunity to nurse the child, you know, things like that. Is there anything that is particularly supportive beyond that for the health of the, of the boy? Certainly. During prenatal care and postpartum care and the care of the infant, I consider that time the most important for watching for things like the quality of your water or the quality of the plastic in your water bottle looking for xenoestrogens. Um, xenoestrogens, by the way, are just things that bind estrogen receptors. And estrogen receptors, uh, for better or for worse, are much more complicated than androgen receptors. You have estradiol receptor alpha, beta, not to get too scientific. No, you can get scientific. You have yeah. three estradiol or estrogen-related receptors, ERR alpha, ERR beta, ERR gamma, and you also have a membrane estrogen receptor. And you actually have more than that, but you have at least six main estrogen and estrogen-related receptors, and xenoestrogens bind a combination of all of them. For example, bisphenol A and phthalates are both related to binding the estrogen-related receptors, and cholesterol itself is a ligand for one of the estrogen-related receptors. So having a normal amount of estrogen binding all three of those is particularly important in the developing male and I guess female as well, but in this sure. case, the developing male. So think about the uh, predisposition or the incidence and prevalence of estrogen dominance in the mother. So caring for a mother that has estrogen dominance, you're thinking about things to minimize estrogen receptor signaling. For example, maybe calcium deglucrate. Mm -hmm. If there's some intrahepatic circulation of estrogen, that way you have less excess estrogen binding in uh, in utero. And then during the first three months, you know, I'm a fan of breastfeeding. I think most people are when yeah. possible. Mm -hmm. It's not always possible, but also thinking about your probiotic and prebiotic regimen, thinking about diet if you're breastfeeding, incorporating dairy if you're able to. Sometimes you're not able to due to colic or whatnot. And incorporating, mm -hmm. uh, and this is kind of when we can talk about meat, incorporating meat because iron, both in utero and the first six months, is strongly correlated with IQ of the infant. I see. Is it with the, uh, in parts of this, is there a different more kind of complicated dynamic between a mother and a male, a male baby just because of the difference of the hormonal environment? Yes. So just the difference in chromosomes, you're more likely to essentially have a mild allergic reaction. That's why the risk of things like preeclampsia are significantly higher if you have a male infant, especially if it's your first male infant. Because if you think about it, you have what's called fetal DNA. Mm -hmm. It's called cell-free fetal DNA. And that's one of the ways that you can get, you know, at like nine or 10 weeks, you can look to see what the gender is because you're essentially looking for foreign Y chromosome material that your body can recognize as foreign. You're more likely to recognize that foreign if there's more of it, so twins, higher risk preeclampsia, mm. male pregnancy, higher risk preeclampsia, uh, first pregnancy, higher risk preeclampsia. Interesting. The definitive management for that is of course delivery because then you're not having that uh, essentially allergen introduced. Right. It's interesting. I, um, I didn't check 
on my genders of my children. And it's so funny that you say that now because, you know, we always were saying, oh, it's the, it's the last kind of great surprise. But when you say that, it's like, oh, that's an argument for, you know, knowing a little bit. It's, it's an interesting uh, thought actually. Cause I'm always like, why does everybody want to know? Doesn't anyone want to be surprised, you know, but to your point. Yeah. Did you unpack the, did you guys check? Did you find out what gender babies you were having? Yeah. You um, did? For the first one we did, um, we were going to wait until the very end in the first one. And then right around 10 weeks, Maddie, my wife decided that um, eh, she'll she'll do the test. She'll want to know. Yeah, sure. And was that a concern for you or not really? You were just going along because she's the mom and you were like, do it the way you want. I would have gone along regardless of of what she would have wanted. And then what about the, the next pregnancy? For the second one, um, I guess we were doing, I was doing enough ultrasounds that uh, either way I would have known. And um, she decided she wanted to know, but not until 20 weeks for that one. That's weird. Like you wait until like just a five months, six months in. That's funny. You know what I mean? Because usually it's like, oh, right away or anyway. It's, It's a lot of fun. So, okay. So first puberty, let's say it's almost like, you know, till three months old, which Mm -hmm. people don't realize. And then next puberty, there's some really interesting and important things that I think you talk about, you know, about what's happening as far as kind of bone density stacking and things like that. So you have some, a young male going through puberty and there's all kinds of disruptive things happening besides hormones, right? The fact that they want to stay up later and sleep later and in the, you know, things happening in the brain. And, and uh, then all of a sudden, you know, and I experienced this with my, with my girls differently. It's sort of like that freedom. Mm-hmm. I can control what they eat here. And there's a part of me and I've been in this long enough where I'm like, yeah, go ahead. If you want to eat that weird food out there, you know, when you're out there, you're going to learn and your skin's going to look a certain way. And, you know, they, they are, I think when you eat pretty well in your house, kids are smart and they, they will eat it and then be like, ew, and kind of get over it. But I think fighting it, at least for me, was not even worth it, especially girls. Like, I don't know. So a boy's going through puberty as a, as a parent is there stuff that maybe parents, if they have the opportunity, if the kid's open to it, can they ramp up on certain things to kind of support that process uh, because it has such long-term impacts? Yeah, certainly. So the first thing that you would want to think about doing uh, when it comes to physical growth and development Mm -hmm. is you want to get good objective data about height, weight, and ideally, and this is for everybody, not just going through puberty, body composition. So in a perfect world, we'd be assessing body composition and not height, weight, and BMI to track growth. When and you then, say body composition, break that down because I don't know if people really know what you mean. Body fat mm-hmm. and then what's called fat-free mass, which encompasses bone mineral density, how the bones are developing and how dense they are, and then also lean bo- like muscle mass. So you want a body composition that is consistently progressing in equal proportion. Mm-hmm. So kind of the, the worst case scenario is you have, oh, one, you could be malnourished. That's probably the worst case scenario. Yeah. And then two, what's a more common scenario is you have body fat accrual significantly faster than accrual of other lean, like bone mineral density and muscle mass. And in that case, you're very likely to have over aromatization, which is basically testosterone converts to estrogen. Estrogen is interesting because estrogen primes the switch I call it the, so the puberty switch is kind of like two different switches. 
you're turning on your car with two keys at the same time. Mm. One of them is leptin that comes from adipose. One of them is uh, melanocyte stimulating hormone, AMSH. And they both activate these kispeptin neurons. Kispeptin is also a peptide, but they activate kispeptin neurons, which is strongly tied in with the limbic system, the emotional system in the brain. And then when that happens, if you have the estrogen primer, then LH starts to work and LH starts to get released. LH is what goes to the Leydig cell to produce testosterone and the theca cell to produce testosterone as well um, in females. But in males, the Leydig, the, um, Leydig cell is in the testes and LH is going to bind it and cause synthesis and release of testosterone. So all of those things have to be present at the same time. Oh. So you want a little bit of estrogen, otherwise you're not gonna be able to prime the switch. But if you have too much, this is very common to see in childhood obesity, you have precocious puberty, which is early puberty, and the growth plates shut down and you have decreased uh, stature of the individual. Okay, so so in a perfect world, this sort of perfect, this symphony has to occur for the, and then this for the switches to go. So if they blow it, especially if the, uh, the kid's obese, they'll do it too soon and maybe stop their growth or how big mm -hmm. they can be. Does it impact bone density and things like that as well? Yes, it, it does. certainly does. So um, one of the kind of standard of care treatments if it's very early pu precocious puberty is- What's that? Is that um, nine or 10? Early puberty, yeah. If it's nine or 10, okay. then very commonly they give something that actually activates the pituitary so much that it shuts down. So it's called tachyphylaxis or it becomes mm -hmm. desensitized to all the other signals. And then you don't have release of testosterone and estrogen. So you don't have accrual of- bone mass, but it does keep the growth plates open. So there's kind of a, a cost benefit analysis to all of it. So it's a moving target because there's not really any such thing as a free lunch. There's a lot of theories about oh, yeah. how we can Im improve this because that is not root cause medicine at all to just shut down everything and impede growth and development. And then yes, there is evidence and case studies to where this is impeded even a decade in the future. So that's also kind of a secondary concern to that. But when you're considering the decision-making process for that, it's often impossible to find the root cause because it's a chicken or the egg situation. You see what's happening. You see they're in early puberty. And at the end of the day- It's um, already coming. Yep. So let's say I have a, a six-year-old and the kid, maybe I'm- doing the best I can as a parent, but our lifestyle and combined with the kids activity level or access to activity and, or what, whatever is, or it was COVID. I mean, for that matter, and they don't live in a place that's natural. And, um, you kind of, you can see certain changes happening. If somebody goes to their pediatrician and we all agree that we're going, you know, with, with the kid, Hey, we're going to try to do better. We're going to, try to eat our vegetables and, you know, oversimplify it. Is there a way to kind of pump the brakes on that so that the kid doesn't have to go through this early puberty and that they actually have a chance to pull up the plane a little bit and push it off to 13, 14, 15? Or is it sort of like a, a, a death, you know, kind of like that's your sentence? It's certainly possible. Even among individuals, there is a strong genetic predisposition to when you go through puberty. So if you look mm -hmm. back, um, for example, almost everyone on my mom's side of the family, including myself, goes through puberty very late compared to other individuals at the same body mass, the same body composition, the same chronologic age. 
So sometimes you're uh, just very slow going through puberty and you keep your growth plates open longer. Is that why you're so big? Is that it? Yeah. Yeah, you're a big person. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a lot of genetic predisposition. And um, probably in your case, it's relatively similar to that. I went through, I didn't, I, I would say it's interesting. I wouldn't say I went through puberty early or late. I think I was right kind of average. I think I probably got my cycle at 12 or 13. Mm -hmm. I grew till 15. Um, my mother's quite tall, yep. uh, six, two and a half. Maybe I could have been bigger. I don't know. I'm taller than my biological father though, which is unusual for daughters to be taller mm -hmm. than their dads. But I have like, for example, my daughters are different. One went through early when, mm -hmm. um, and the one you met just went through later. And she's also the tallest one. Interesting. So it's, you know, it's maybe one took from one side of the family, one took from the mm -hmm. other. I don't know. Yeah. In general, the earlier you go through puberty, the faster your growth velocity as well. So. Oh. Um, you can grow very quickly, you know, uh, oh. five or six inches just in one year. Yeah, I used to do that. And that can be difficult to deal with as well. Yeah, I was six feet at 12, five feet at seven. Yeah. I, I grew pretty quick. I, could, I was a kid who could grow three inches in the summer, no problem. Yeah. Yeah. So if you, if you're doing, let's say you, you're active and, uh, you know, your family's background is, it's law looks kind of normal or average. Are there outside, are there environmental things though that can kick kids that are not dealing with obesity? They are active, they eat reasonably into this early puberty? Yeah, there certainly is. So they they are rare. So it's rare okay. to have like a gonadotropin producing tumor, which is like yeah. extra LH and FSH. Very rarely you do see them and there is case reports. But often when you have you know, some of those changes earlier, it's not true puberty. It's just that you have hyperactive adrenal glands producing a lot of DHEA sulfate. That's dehydroepiandrosterone. It's a weak androgen, mm -hmm. but it can convert to testosterone and estrogen. And there's a huge variation in the amount of that as well. It's interesting. So if you, you were talking about these switches, this can also impact the way your brain then, like your brain and temperament and personality, correct? Mm -hmm. So what happens, or is there some sort of uh, pattern seen in a kid who maybe goes through puberty a little bit earlier or for these reasons, like in their way that their behavior? There certainly is. Um, there, they certainly tend, and this is not like a hundred all or nothing. No, no. It's not a I, true no. dichotomy, but okay. certainly on average, they are interested in very different things. So you compare a male child that goes through puberty at 12 versus 15 and they will be interested in very different things at different ages and they will be predisposed to getting in different sorts of trouble depending on what age they're at so are you saying they will be getting girls pregnant earlier than other boys i'm joking but i mean like what is it that they're more interested in yeah theoretically anything <laughs> from that to higher risk behaviors mm -hmm. so testosterone and androgens don't they don't like change who you are as a person and how you've developed. That goes back to nature and nurture and it's both at the same time, mm -hmm. but they do augment what you are already developing into. And if you augment those tendencies in an individual who's younger, mm -hmm. let's say they have one of the things that they call it is like conduct disorder, oppositional defiant disorder. They, there's medical names for everything, right? Sure. But essentially people who are- <laughs> Stubborn. Yes. People who are stubborn. <laughs> combative. Like, combative, likely to disagree with authority, more likely to um, get in trouble with the law or just in trouble with any authority figure that will be augmented at an earlier age. It must be interesting for someone like you 
who sees patients and has is a, equipped with a lot of information where these sort of systems and patterns are all around us. And when we can start to identify a lot of things, how they're linked together, you're like, it's so obvious, I would imagine. I'm curious because you, you know, you've, you were, you kind of grew up in a more specific or unique way, I think, right? Kind of home. Yeah, I was homeschooled. And yeah. I mean, I, I, I feel like your family's probably, you know, you're smart people, but there, there's something in your journey. I'm, I just am curious about that really informed you wanting to be in, in medicine and, you know, get under the hood. And I'm also curious now that you're a parent, besides somebody who knows, how does it show up for you as a parent? Because now we're in real life and we're trying to put it into play and we can have all the, you know, lists of what we're supposed to do. So let's start with like maybe what your parents did really well that worked for you and your siblings that you've brought into your own personal practice as a parent and maybe some modifications you've met made because you and your wife are a new family. Mm -hmm. I like that I had a lot of ability to be creative and do a lot of critical thinking. I did not have to sit a lot. If I was in public school, I would have been diagnosed with ADHD for sure because I just hate, uh, unless I'm actively doing something, I don't like sitting for a long period of time and doing nothing. Mm -hmm. So I like that. I like that I spent a lot of time outdoors and I like that I learned how to do a lot of things. For example, you know, tend to garden or tend animals or a number of things like that. Prepare food, shop for myself, you know, be financially responsible. As far as, I guess, things that I have been doing differently, partly just because my kids are different than me. Well, it's a different world. And it's a different world as well. Is being okay with not becoming like medically orthorexic. And by that, I mean with food, if you're so hyper-focused on only eating the healthiest foods, another name for that is orthorexia. So basically, mm -hmm. if you're orthorexic and you eat something unhealthy, like let's say uh, French fries and chicken fingers, you feel bad about yourself for doing that. And the same thing can kind of be true in my case. If there's something that, you know, like let's say one of my kids is watching Blippy. So I have to be like, yes, there's, the, the dose makes the poison, but I have to be okay not feeling guilty about that and being okay with the positives of that and not just thinking about the negatives. Mm -hmm. And is there something, I mean, I imagine, because my husband and I, we, with technology, right? Like it's a, it is a battle. Because if it was up to him, he everything would be in the driveway and he'd have his truck and he'd just be going forwards and backwards and forwards and backwards, right? Mm -hmm. And so what? how is the, where do you learn how to, because I think a lot of parents, especially technology, and you know, it starts with blippy and then before you know it, you know, you're in TikTok and Snapchat and you have other things. So do you guys already have a strategy in place? I'm just fascinated by people who can actually pull it off. And then do, are you going to send your children to kind of, you know, let's say nine to five school or, you know, eight to three school, or are you going to, you know, cause I homeschooled my kids for mm -hmm. a bit and until they request otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, we're not sure. And part of that will be up to how, uh, my kids, Ozzy and Archer develop. So, um, you mean if they're really naughty, you're yeah. going to keep them home? <laughs> well, <laughs> probably not. Um, just kind of depending on what situation would be best for them. One thing that I do know is 
I cannot perfectly predict everything that will happen with them yeah. and how they will turn out. I already know their personalities by now. Uh, Archer's almost two and Ozzy's three. So I can predict some things of how they will succeed and maybe how they won't, but that very well might change. So you'll, you're just going to see. Yeah. That's the conversation, I, the I would pillow talk, we call it. I would expect that we'd probably at least partly homeschool them. There's a lot of, um, there's not as much of a separation between, you know, going to school or being homeschooled. So there's mm -hmm. co-ops where you just go a day or two a week or mm -hmm. parents might teach, or you can go to like a university model school where it's just a couple days a week. So there's a, a lot of in-between options. And I think a lot of people will be looking at one of those. Yeah. I, 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 if you have that opportunity, I think it's an incredible option. Does it, I mean, you're a very even healed person. Does, are you surprised? Does parenting surprise you? Like the impact it's had yeah. on you as a um, person? There are a lot of surprises, but it does not surprise me that there is. So one of the reasons why I like medicine is that it can be very hyper analytical. So you can mm -hmm. um, see why something happened. And then you can also delineate between, well, this is, this is certainly why, and this is maybe why. Mm -hmm. And with being a parent, instead of predicting a lot of things, you do your best to predict, but then you also are okay when a different outcome happens. Yeah. So interesting. Do you ever, do you ever like have the two on one and both of them in the car and all of a sudden you're like, I can't think my way out of this. I'm actually feeling the whole thing and I don't, it's not that I don't know what to do, but I'm, you know, there's sort of like a winging it or, or are you sort of always kind of being strategic about it? I always try to have a plan, but <laughs> at the end of the day, most of it's just winging it. Okay. Yeah. If you had, if you had looked at me, like if you talked to me three or four years ago <laughs> and told me exactly my situation now, then um, I would have said, okay, sure. But I would have never predicted it. Yeah. It's interesting. So you have a, you have, let's say you have uh, athletic teenage boys. Is there a better time you know, because you hear about growth plates when they're open, they shouldn't have tons of um, time under tension or, you know, should they? Is there is there something that shows up as a kind of universal truth? I know there's always exceptions to the rule of, hey, these types of training, like, for example, girls with the shapes of their hips and their hormones, they're talking about why are we not having them do skill-oriented training versus sometimes resistance while they're going through some of the changes. Cause it can be, why are all the soccer players blowing out their ACLs, right? Things like that. Is there, is there, if there sort of some way that shows up that it feels overall pretty good for an athletic male, as far as the training outside of the sport? Yes, yeah, certainly. So mobility and flexibility are certainly important. Coordination is important too, especially mm -hmm. if there's a high growth velocity, which is a lot of growth in a short period of time. But the main thing to keep in mind is do not dirty bulk. Oh, and that's what they're all doing too, though. If guys no. play football, then they're like, I drink creatine and uh, my mom's making me 75 shakes a day. So it's just trying to calorie load and get size, right? Yeah. I suppose you could make the case that after your growth plates are completely closed, so maybe when you're 17, that it wouldn't be extremely detrimental. But if you're 14 or 15 years old, mm. you should for sure not be dirty bulking. Just a, a nice, even weight gain, especially trying to dirty bulk over a summer. That's just a terrible idea. Yeah. 
It's funny though, because you, let's say we're in Texas and you know, football's religion, let's say, yeah. and they hold guys back. Like some guys are graduating at 20 or whatever, mm-hmm. not picking on Texas, but they're a great example of it is the long term yeah. of dirty bulking for anyone. It's can be tough on you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, my wife's family, I, all the men in the family, they're all football players yeah. and they like to say there's only two ways that an athlete can go. And I think they're specifically talking about football and wrestling, which is what they do. And one of the ways is that they become obese and get diabetes and metabolic syndrome. And the other way is that they um, lean down, even if they think that they're losing muscle mass after college. Yeah. It's just a lot easier to manage. Mm -hmm. It's funny how it is like that. Uh, The important thing is not to be so broken that you can't move enough to try to manage the weight. I Mm -hmm. think I see that with a lot of athletes where you, people don't realize pretty much if you play sports at any high level, even if it's high school, mm-hmm. there is some, you're paying the piper something. And then if you go longer college and then pros, I mean, it's like really trying to navigate that fine line yeah. of being so beat up that you don't even, or you're over it, Yeah, right? Like you've trained so much, you're just like, I'm over it. Mm-hmm. So it, supplementation for men, young men, or even young adult males is there, I, I know you, you sort of say, hey, listen, if people actually have the opportunity at around 18 or such, just get that baseline mm-hmm. blood work. Is there supplements that show up for young men, even if their blood work shows up great, that is supportive? There certainly is, uh, but it's very individualized, especially so for the pediatric population. So in the past, I've talked about various strategies to improve growth hormone. Those are really only applicable in pediatric populations that are borderline insufficient or borderline deficient in growth hormone. If you have optimal levels of growth hormone, those will do nothing. And there's also strategies to decrease levels of estrogen. And again, those strategies are only applicable in pediatric populations with, um, or 18, 19 year old, the physiology is very similar than a 16 year old. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is in the past, I've talked about creatine specifically. And the, I believe it's the AAP still has, and it's been 10 years, so they'll update their statement soon. (laughs) But they still have a statement that anybody up to the age of 18 specifically should not take creatine Mm. due to to the potential risk of renal injury. But the physiology between a 16-year-old and an 18-year-old is really quite similar. Mm -hmm. And creatine has some very interesting benefits, especially for the athlete, given that it can help them retain more water weight and also improve testosterone and DHT while giving them more energy as well. The water weight, and I can tell you as a female that takes creatine, nobody, I don't love it, right? Like three to five pounds, just like that creatine. It's just the way it is. And like, you have to know my standing weight's 175 and now it's 180. And when you step on the scale, you're like, oh, there's the water weight. What is the benefit to a young man to have water weight? Yeah, you have more, more sarcoplasm. So sarcoplasm Mm -hmm. is like the cytoplasm or the water inside the cell and the muscle. And that's going to help with shunting energy in. Think of creatine as the backup fuel tank Mm -hmm. for your mitochondria, the main powerhouse of the cell. We love the mitochondria. Yeah. So now that being said, if you Is that happening for me too? Certainly. It is? You're trying to make me Mm -hmm. feel better? No, I'm serious. It's also a potent nootropic, especially as age is increasing. So you, there's studies and they take different ages of people and then have them do memory recall. And the more increase their age, the more the creatine will help with improved speed and accuracy of 
recalling items. And do you like to at a certain time of the day better than another time or does it matter? Not necessarily. Most people take it in the morning. Some yeah. people that are non-responders can take more than five grams a day. You can load it, but you don't need to load it. And then also if you can combine it with other things like betaine, which is the same thing as trimethylglycine. Mm -hmm. If you're trying to decrease homocysteine basically as a methyl donor, which has to do with the homocysteine methionine cycle. That's just uh, like oxidative damage and also amino acid synthesis. Mm -hmm. But a good rule of thumb is five grams of creatine once a day in the morning. And you don't really have to cycle that off, right? Like you can just kind of take it. Correct. 10, 15, 20 years ago, we didn't know that for sure. So people would cycle off and check a creatinine. So creatinine is a lab, it's in a CMP. And we, we used to estimate GFR, which is the filtration rate of the kidney using creatinine. But if you're on creatine, especially if you exercise, then your creatinine is going to look high because you've been utilizing more fuel and you're basically detecting the exhaust there. So what I usually use for people that are on creatine, including pediatric populations is cystatin C. You can also estimate a filtration rate from that. What, and then we can move into like mature men. What is showing up or what are you seeing? Is something changing? Are you seeing a change? Like your patients coming to you, whether younger or older, are there some new patterns that um, are either positive or negative that are kind of showing up based on the world that we're in right now? Very common to see pediatric obesity, very common to see pediatric sleep disorders, including sleep apnea, even in 12 year old, 13 year old. But uh, I suppose I'm trying to think of positive patterns as well. There is a lot more of the pediatric population that is interested in health optimization, perhaps due to podcasts, perhaps due to sports. Mm -hmm. It's kind of hard to say, but my recommendation there is for every patient, pediatric or not, to find a movement pastime to last a lifetime that is often easiest to do when you are still an adolescent or developing because you have more of that kind of like built-in neuroplasticity. I, sometimes I say, especially for guys, um, guys are interested in performance enhancing drugs, especially athletes. Think of your adolescence as your, I don't want to say free, but think of it as your freebie performance enhancing drug, but it's endogenously produced. When you go through puberty, you are so sensitive to those hormones you're noticing those hormone shifts in all systems. So you go from low levels to hopefully high normal levels. Mm -hmm. And that is um, one of the best times to stockpile and accrue and invest, just like you wanna invest in your 401k, you invest in your bone mass and your lean body mass during that time. Okay, I let's say someone's listening to this and they're like, yeah, I blew that. I grew up in an uninformed household. I didn't get that lifestyle note. I was sickly, who knows, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I'm 30, I'm 40, whatever it is. And let's say they've made corrections. The lifestyle is on cue, right? Like I'll joke, like they're doing enough zone two. Yeah. I was joking with you, like everyone wants to talk to me about zone two. I know it's correct, but it's just yeah. funny. And the, they're, you know, they're eating well, uh, their protein. Are, are you sort of, are you comfortable with sort of one gram of protein of ideal body weight-ish for people, for men? Does yeah. that seem okay? It's a good rule of thumb. And yes, it's okay if a lot of that is plant protein. Okay, great. Because you need that fiber. Let's, let's actually just go right there right now. We were, we were talking about with aging women, 
it's it's sort of be mindful, if, especially if you're a performance woman, that maybe fasting isn't going to be great for you, mm-hmm. and that you need you need to probably eat more protein and do spend some time time under tension, mm-hmm. lift something heavy, move your body. Yeah. And when I say that, it I think people think, oh, I, I need to go load up in the plates and get in the gym and squat. It's like, no, you just, you need to lift something. So right. I, I don't want ever for women to be intimidated. Um, but for men, you're actually saying in certain things, it's a flip of that, especially as they get older. Yeah. A lot of times your optimal protocol for an aging female and an aging male is opposite. So the males fi- need to eat more fruits and vegetables. <laughs> they need to do more cardio, zone one, zone two, all the above. And to get more steps, have more non-exercise thermogenesis or more calories burned outside of exercise. And they're usually at lower risk of sarcopenia and osteopenia, which is low muscle mass and low bone mass, but not necessarily. By the way, regardless of the individual, if you are at risk of low bone mass, then a specific type of exercise called axial loading is of particular benefit. They have different like brand name protocols of this, like Osteo Strong and this and that. But basically, that is ax- not a sexy name, Osteo yeah. Strong. <laughs> ax- axial loading is just resi- um, training against weight that comes from head down through your feet. Mm-hmm. So a squat or a deadlift would be an example of that. And one of my favorite versions of that for someone who is not into lifting is using a trap bar or an open trap bar. And especially one of the ones with the built-in yeah. changing of the weights off and it's on. It's so smart. I got one for my f- uh, friend, Chris Duffin. He lifts, you know, I mean, he's out of control, right? A thousand pounds, multiple reps and deadlift and squat. Yep. But he's the one, he sent us a beautiful one. Kabuki has a really nice open track bar. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. So the fiber, this. So if someone though is is now concerned, like they've looked up, They've gotten through college. They they're sort of in their life, and they are now have just a little bit of extra time to look up. And they realize, like, oh man, I'm I may not be in the best setup place for this next kind of chapter. Yeah. We have the idea of lifting and and the and you know eating a certain way and burning calories outside of exercise per se. But is there anything as far as like your bones are concerned to make up for lost time, if you will, or maybe they were obese mm-hmm. when they were young? It, is there something? As far as accruing more bone mass after mid-20s, it's very difficult. Mm-hmm. There's been very interesting studies on growth hormone, on IGF-1, and on uh, even TRT or androgen therapy. And after the early to mid-20s, it is very difficult to get ahead, to stockpile more. However, you can prevent loss very well. And when you combine it with things like axial loading or resistance training, mm-hmm then you can get some response. It's just not as pronounced. So it's not really a reason not to do that, but it is certainly a reason why if there's a, uh, let's say, take an individual who is pediatric population versus someone who's 30 years old, there's less benefit to something like growth hormone therapy if they are borderline deficient. I see. How did you know, TRT and growth hormone and testosterone and some of this hormone therapy in certain ways, it kind of got, I don't want to say a bad rap, but there was a lot of, you know, sort of like, oh, you're going to get cancer and and sort of all this bad rap. And it's really maybe based on a study that I don't know if it's true or not. In an overall, if someone comes to you and they, they get their blood work done, let's say they're, it's sort of an appropriate age. So they're, I don't know, what's an appropriate age, mid forties, 
I guess it depends on what it's appropriate for. Um, if let's say if they a, let's have, take a civilian, let's say not a hyper, let's say not a maybe a performance athlete, not somebody who's still doing triathletes. Let's just say somebody who's trying to stay healthy, mm-hmm. longevity, but they do train, they're moving their body. Mm-hmm. It, so, I mean, is it 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 is about mid forties, isn't it, or fifty ish? There is a lot of variability, but often that's when you want to. That's like the last chance to get your baseline panel because you could already have... Uh, you start to drop off a cliff is what yeah. you're going to say. And there's actually a lot of studies <laughs> that look at testosterone levels after the age of 30 with good lifestyle factors. A lot of that can be delayed slightly, but with average lifestyle factors, you're expecting a decline. Uh, for example, it would be very average to have a decline of 10 nanograms per deciliter every year. So if your testosterone at age 30 is 700 then 10 years later, it would be 100 less. And then 10 years later, 100 less. Yeah. So the idea of get your blood work done and would you be comfortable sharing what sort of panels you think are reasonable to to get that give you a nice snapshot? Yeah. And I I know you've provided on your website. Yeah, they are on my website, but the most important part of the panel would be the screening labs that your doctor will already likely order. Mm-hmm. So you're, hopefully your A1C, maybe a fasting insulin, definitely recommend a fasting insulin because those are signs of metabolic syndrome, which is the most common pathology. So you want to make sure you're not pre-diabetic. You want to make sure you don't have insulin resistance. You also want to get your lipids checked, hopefully ApoB in addition to LDL, if you know your LDL is going to be high. And then you want to get your metabolic panel, which is your CMP and your CBC to check for things like anemia. And then in addition to that, you want to Do men have anemia? They do. Really? Not as often iron deficient anemia because they don't have as much blood loss, but men can certainly be anemic. Um, Estrogen helps you retain iron. So higher estrogen, you can have iron overload, but you could also have things like B12 deficiency anemia or even athlete's anemia. Anemia from essentially exploding red blood cells. Yeah. But uh, they they can certainly become anemic, or even if they're not anemic, they're probably going to have a lot better performance if they have a hemoglobin of 16 instead of 13.2. So that's something to look at. As far as hormones, TSH and at least a free T4, probably a free T3 as well. Those are your thyroid hormones. And then your estradiol for men, it needs to be an LCMS or a sensitive estradiol, um, also known as equilibrium ultrafiltration. But just look for a sensitive estradiol or a free estradiol, and then you want a total and free testosterone or just a total testosterone and SHBG, that's sex hormone binding globulin that binds up androgens and estrogens. That would be your bare minimum. And if someone, like if you hear that, people go, oh my God, like that's so much stuff, right? So they get all this checked and they go, um, hey, you know, you're doing pretty good on the things, the levers you can control. And uh, it wouldn't hurt to take to get some hormone therapy. Is it, does it, and this is just more about people who don't know, is it showing up as a shot? Is it a pellet? Is it creams? Is it supplementation? Um, is it a kind of mixture of all the above? And, and kind of when is that appropriate? Yeah, when it comes to choosing whether or not to do HRT, mm-hmm. regardless of like which formulations and, and whatnot, it's just like any other medication. So you have a scale and you have your benefit and you have your detriment. You want your benefit to outweigh your detriment. So the difference between how heavy the benefit and the detriment are, that's called the therapeutic window. So some people have a very narrow therapeutic window 
Mm. And the therapeutic window might be a lot of benefit and a lot of detriment in someone, or it might be a little bit of benefit and a little bit of detriment. The pain and inconvenience of having to take the medication, regardless of it's injectable or a pill, does weigh into the detriment. And that can be different depending on the individual. Wait, when you say pain, you mean like the hassle? And sometimes literally the pain as well. But getting a little shot? I know people are scared of needles. I have a really good friend who's a badass and he, it's like, help, do mm, not give him a needle. Thank God for um, the little baby needles. Yeah. So, okay, you're calling that as part of the pain? The, the, oh, mm-hmm. okay. The pain, and it's just bothersome. It's, um, it's not always pills, but pill fatigue is another term that people have. I so, know it. Yeah. I'd be embarrassed. I could show you my cabinet over here. It's really, sometimes I'm like, yo, get it together. Yeah, and that's something to take into account, and that's something that I encounter very frequently because I work with an interdisciplinary team. So there's dietitians, there's health coaches, there's DCs, mm-hmm. um, there's PTs, there's a whole bunch of other individuals who are often starting supplements. And you start a supplement because you want to help someone. And then someone has to be the bad guy that tries to weigh which ones are Yeah, really uh, important too. Yep. So is it the pellet? Is that kind of seems sometimes just to be sort of the most reasonable because they get it in there and then is it in every sort of three or four months or how does that work? This is highly dependent on the individual, yep. but most people end up preferring, if it's TRT, an mm-hmm. injectable subcutaneous regimen, usually twice a week, maybe three times a week. Sometimes you can get it really, really shallow subcutaneous, five sixteenths of an inch. There's auto injectors where oh. it can, if you have a SHBG of above about 40, you can get by with once a week. It does depend on the individual. So if you take another individual, they have an SHBG, that's the binding protein that binds it up. Yeah. So if you have lower SHBG, then you're going to have a lot faster metabolism. In that case, you'd probably need two or three times a week. The more superficial you inject, the longer it takes the enzyme called esterases to come and cleave off the ester, for example, cypionate or enanthate. And that's why using a shallower needle and often a much smaller needle as well is actually preferable. Oh, so and literally now they've got it where you just hit a button and you, it just goes in there. Oh, that's amazing. They have auto injectors for almost everything. They have lymphatically absorbed testosterone. They have testosterone patches called androderm. Mm-hmm. They have testosterone cream, testosterone gel. Um, there's actually three different brand name lymphatically absorbed testosterone capsules that you take twice a day with food. They go through your lymph system and not the liver. So there's a lot of different formulations. And then what, that's amazing. You're going to be young forever. You're going to get to play around with all this stuff. Look at him. He's like, yes, actually I will. The base of some of the stuff, oil versus, is. do you have a preference? Yeah. So almost all hormones are based in oils or what's called carrier oils. Yeah. And then even the lymphatically absorbed ones, you're supposed to take with fat because fat and oil helps it be absorbed. And then each one is usually mixed in with oil, kind of like vitamin D. Vitamin yeah. D is absorbed better if it's in a gel cap that has oil in it rather than a uh, powder. So if you're injecting it, there's something called viscosity that basically means how thick the, or how thin the oil is. And there's no perfect oil, but a very thin carrier oil that has a thin viscosity like MCT oil, mm-hmm. yes, it will go in and out of the needle easier. So you can use a narrower gauge needle, but it also has a faster half-life. So um, there's an interesting study. It's on 
testosterone undecanoate, and they compared, I believe, castor oil, which is a very thick viscosity, and tea tree oil. And the tea tree oil has a thinner, it's not a, it's actually not a super thin viscosity. Right. If they had used MCT oil, it would have been way different. Or even GSO, which is grapeseed. But the half-life of the tea tree oil was almost twice as short as the half-life of the castor oil. Interesting. So, oh, that's interesting. And it's, you know, when you think of tea tree too, you think of something that's pretty strong. Yeah. I mean. Castor oil as well. So progesterone is usually in castor oil. That's why often if you're injecting progesterone, mm. then you have to use a, a pretty Significant. big needle. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise the castor oil just will not flow through Can't get it in a there. nice narrow gauge needle. Now this is a random question, but let's say someone's single and they're not able for whatever reason they can't because it can you take it in the in the thigh if you were by yourself and versus in the glute or where do you where you, where is it optimal there's a lot of different regions that you can take it some people do it in subcutaneous abdominal fat yeah a lot of people do it in what's called the ventral glute uh, kind of like the gluteus medius area which is halfway between the hip bones on the side of the buttocks yeah some people do it in the deltoid area. Oh. Some people even do it in the pec. I don't recommend that. Some people yeah. still do it in the vastus lateralis, which is the edge of the uh, quad muscle. But most people, it's either recommended to do it in the subcutaneous abdominal region or in the gluteus medius, mm. the buttocks. This podcast is brought to you by Ritual. I personally have been taking their Essential for Women 18 plus multivitamin since the pandemic began. I was just looking for a really great multivitamin and I love the fact that it has high quality, traceable key ingredients in clean bioavailable forms. Because for me, if you're going to, and if I'm going to share it with you, put your resources, whether it's your time or money towards something, you want to know, hey, not only do they have best practices, but this is actually going to do something for me. And 97% of women ages 19 to 50 are not getting enough vitamin D from their diet. It's hard to do. And I like to get as much as I can from my diet, but that is why I take a multivitamin. And Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus was shown to increase vitamin D levels by 43% in a clinical study. The other thing is they take nine key nutrients in two delayed release capsules per day that optimize your body's absorption. So I think one of the things is, is like, oh, is it an empty stomach? Is it a full stomach? Well, because they, the way that they've done these capital, capsules, it's dental on an empty stomach. And at the end, you get this nice little minty essence in every bottle. So for a lot of people, sometimes these are the things that keep them from taking multis and making it easy and being able to enjoy it, whether it's timing or I don't like the after burps. And the other thing about it is ritual multivitamins are vegan. They're non-GMO project verified, gluten and major allergen free, and they are certified B Corp. And like I said earlier, everything is made traceable and they have a wonderful offer for you today. So all you have to do, you don't have any more shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. You'll get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash Gabby. If you want to start your ritual, or you can add the Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today, that's ritual, R-I-T-U-A-L dot com slash Gabby for 25% off. This podcast is brought to you by Babbel. 
I don't know about you, but every time I travel, I kick myself that I haven't spent more time learning whatever language it is in the place that I'm visiting. It's like you want to connect with the people in a real way. Well, immersion, you know, that's the best way. But most of us can't move somewhere and, and you know, live there and learn the language, even though that's number one. But number two is with Babel. And the reason that is, is first of all, they have it's really quick. They've got 10 minute lessons and, but they're handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. But what I love about it is it's designed by real people for real conversations. It's like, listen, we all want to know, like talk about food and directions and things like that. And Babel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real life situations and delivered with conversation-based teaching. So you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. And that's the other thing I love is just combining that because you think, okay, maybe using a trip that you have planned or getting together with family somewhere, using that as your motivation to get going. And you don't have to pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that maybe don't really even help you you know, speak a new language. In fact, a study showed, there was one study, they did studies at Yale, Michigan State, that Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours, that's nothing, is equivalent to a full semester at college They've got over 16 million subscribers sold, plus all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. So here's the incredible offer. For a special limited-time deal for our listeners right now, you can get 50% off a one-time payment for a lifetime Babbel subscription but only for my listeners at babbel.com Gabby. So to get 50% off, at babbel.com slash Gabby. That's babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Gabby. Some rules and restrictions may apply. We might have talked about the book Countdown and just talking about kind of the environmental disruptors to the endocrine system for um, it's funny. I feel like women's systems are obviously we were able to have children. So there's a different level of orchestration and complication. And then we have our cycle every month, but I feel like I could be wrong. It feels that in certain ways, men are actually impacted by environmental things. Also, maybe more than they even realize like their testosterone levels, whatever sperm efficacy or, you know, sperm count, whatever that is. Do you have patients that come to you that it's sort of really about the environmental impacts and how would you, um, in fact, I just interviewed somebody who had really bad psoriasis and, um, and eczema because he doesn't methylate toxins well, right? He yeah. figured out based on his DNA, he actually created an entire company based on this, which is fascinating. He doesn't methylate things well. So if someone comes to you and, the, and you, you sort of think, oh, maybe this person is impacted by the places they've lived and who knows how do what are the steps because that's a hard onion to peel a little bit for people yeah and this is kind of where individualized medicine comes in mm -hmm. if you're thinking about the immune system you have humoral and you have cell mediated so humoral is antibody mediated pathologies and then you cell mediated is not due to antibody it's your white blood cells the rest of your immune system and Estrogen tends to skew you more towards hu uh, humoral diseases. Mm -hmm. You think about Hashimoto's thyroiditis that's mediated by an antibody. 
Whereas androgens tend to skew you to the other type of immunological pathology. So psoriasis is actually an example of cell mediated. Mm -hmm. So if you tend to be less estrogen dominant, that will skew what's called the Th1 to Th2 immune system. Those are kind of the, the two different types. So you can make the case that if you have deficient estrogen, then you might have something like psoriasis get worse. Mm. Now, there's a lot of other factors that are at play, of course, but that is one of the ways that hormones indirectly influence autoimmunity. Do you Are you seeing younger men coming in and sort of wanting to contemplate, get maybe based on their lifestyle, getting some... Because I think they maybe it's like people feel more tired. I think they feel overwhelmed. I mean, even the new, you know, it's like constant information and news and blue light and sitting in cars and sitting in desks. I don't know. I feel like in certain ways, it feels like there's a big load sitting on a lot of people that you have to consciously really figure out how to break out of. Are you seeing more and more, you know, sort of men that are younger going, Hey, I'm, I just don't, I don't feel good. I feel tired. I feel, Mm -hmm. I'm not excited. I'm not, I don't feel, you know, people aren't having as much sex. They've got all these dating apps. Mm -hmm. They're having less sex. What do you, what's your feeling on that? Yeah. This is, there's a very interesting phenomenon. Chris Williamson talks about this Mm -hmm. a lot on, on his podcast, by the way, but I feel like he's really interested in also like uh, women and men and relationships. Like mm-hmm. I, I can, cause then maybe that's also where he is in his life, mm-hmm. but I, it's like, you really see him drilling down on this. Yeah. It's interesting because you look at both adolescent males and males in their twenties mm-hmm. and compared to the rest of human history, they have completely different motives and mm-hmm. think about like their collective cultural psyche has not come to a conclusion of what they should be doing other than, you know, perhaps is, does an individual want to pursue a career? Maybe, maybe not. Does the individual want to pursue having a family? Maybe, maybe not. Mm. But they're trying to figure out what they can do because even if they wanted to, for example, uh, say they get married and have a family in their early 20s, many just are not able to. So then you have the manosphere that tries to explain things like that. And then you have the, you know, like the people are explaining, well, it's this reason or it's that reason. But at the end of the day, it's multifactorial. Yeah. So a lot of times when they seek out care with me, it's because they have something that they are not happy with. For example, it could be something simple as hair loss prevention. They're 28 and they don't want to lose their hair early because Mm -hmm. they still want to get married and have a family. And they know that that can play a part in how attractive they are perceived. Wait, so are they, are these guys that maybe their hair starting to thin a little? And so they come in to see you about this? Yeah. So, um, that, the, mm-hmm. and that's actually the time to do it is as early as possible. Hair is scored on what's called the Norwood scale and Norwood zero, I guess is perfect. And then one, two, three, four, five, six, you have progression. And the earlier you intervene through a variety of different means, the better results you have in the long run. Okay. So how does one, I'm curious, how does one intervene? Um, and what does it look like in your twenties, in your thirties, in your forties and in your fifties? Cause I would imagine it's different. It can be slightly different, mm-hmm. but you intervene to get the most benefit with the least detriment, just like anything else. Yeah. And the three different mechanisms are anti-androgen. So 
Men are, of course, predisposed to what's called male pattern baldness or androgenetic alopecia. And you have growth agonists. And then you also have blood flow or hypoxic tissue damage. So you assess through both a history and objective labs what is most likely progressing the, like what's the true cause of your hair loss. Some people come in and they just have a thyroid disorder or they have an iron deficiency or they just had a virus. And that's what's caused a big hair shed. But usually there's an androgenic component and you look at how severe, how significant this is. Occasionally there's also an estrogen deficient component. And then you pick an individualized regimen on that patient. No, people don't necessarily have to have genetic tests. Occasionally it's useful, Mm -hmm. but often you can tell just by getting objective lab markers and getting a history. And what is it? Is it a topical or do you take something or is it a different, like what, I'm curious because I, as a woman, we, we have a, we, we worry about a, a lot of other things usually. I mean, yeah. We get that too, but. Occasionally it's topical. Occasionally it's medication. If the more predisposed you are or the later you're intervening, <laughs> the more likely you are to need to use a regimen that has better efficacy. So your regimens with best efficacy are oral anti-androgens or oral 5-alpha reductase inhibitors. Mm -hmm. If you're desiring future fertility within the next 12 to 24 months, then that kind of like changes your options. And then oral minoxidil is also particularly useful if you need more growth agonism or you want results faster. So if you're trying to get results in three to six months, you're going to likely want to incorporate some sort of growth agonist like PRP, minoxidil, GHRP, peptides. Um, Microneedling is another growth agonist. So there's a whole host of those where as your anti-androgens, those are things like ketoconazole, 5-alpha reductase inhibitors, both natural and prescribed. And then as far as like blood flow, preventing hypoxic tissue damage, that's things like sildenafil, tadalafil, even immunomodulator, botulinum mm-hmm. toxin, mm-hmm. and then theoretically scalp massage. Although it's- I like how you say theoretically. Theoretically. <laughs> I'm not buying it? I'm sure there are some people that have such good adherence that they can massage the scalp in order to decrease hypoxic tissue damage. Mm. But if you're going to have adherence that much, then why not just use an, an immunomodulator that you're not going to form autoantibodies to? So if I'm an older guy and I'm not planning on having any kids, you can throw the kitchen sink at it for the most part. Because it's really about also considering if you're trying to have babies. Is yes. that right? Or even if you're a younger guy and you don't plan to attempt a conception within, for, if you're a finasteride candidate. You can, by just, the, you can just trick her, throw everything at it, land the babe, get off the stuff, have the baby, and you know, worry about the hair later. Is that it? <laughs> I suppose so. Um, there's, <laughs> something, there's something called intratesticular testosterone. Uh-huh. So I guess it, this could be a good time to get into testosterone in the gonadus itself. Intratesticular testosterone is going to have what's called a positive feedback mechanism on spermatogenesis. So more testosterone in the sperm actually leads to better production of sperm. One of the ways it does that is it increases, some people call it androgen binding globulin. It's mm-hmm. actually just SHBG. Okay. It's, it's the same thing. Okay. So I just call it oh. SHBG but it just happens to come from the testes and not from the liver because it's usually synthesized in the liver. Anyway, that doesn't matter so much. But when you're thinking about 5-alpha reductase, that's the enzyme that converts testosterone to DHT. You have three different buckets. So I think of these as three different rooms. One of the rooms, um, and each one is present in all cells, but in some cells, it's at much higher levels. And what's called pubic skin, the type 2 isoenzyme is at very high level. 
That's mainly what finasteride inhibits. This is also in uh, nervous system tissue in the CNS. So that's one reason why individuals on finasteride tend to notice what's called a finasteride syndrome, which is disproportionate symptoms of low testosterone in the genitourinary system or in the nervous system. Whereas you have type three, which is in non-genital skin that is mainly inhibited by dutasteride. Type one is inhibited by both of them to some degree, but the hair follicle is part of, uh, there, there's a different ratio of type two to type three and type one to type two in every tissue, including the hair follicle. So finasteride and dutasteride both work in the hair follicle, but dutasteride is much more efficacious than finasteride in non-genital skin, like the skin of the scalp. Got it. So theoretically, dutasteride is a much better pharmacodynamic, which is the drug effect on the body for hair loss prevention. However, type three is also in a high concentration in the testicle. So finasteride is far superior to dutasteride when you desire optimal spermatogenesis. So for that reason, I say plan to avoid dutasteride within 12 to 24 months of conception just to have optimal spermatogenesis parameters and positive feedback mechanism in the gonad. But other than that, finasteride is usually a second best choice to either topical or oral dutasteride regimens. So what about, you know, you'll see guys that they are taking GH or, you know, some hormone and then, but they say, oh, it makes my hair, I lose my hair. What's happening there? So God's justice, you can have bigger muscles and be leaner, but you're going to lose your hair. No, I'm kidding. What I mean, what is that? HGH can increase cell turnover. Mm -hmm. So it can increase the quality of the skin and the hair that you do have. In fact, there, there wasn't like a big single point in time, like the women's health initiative where GH or testosterone TRT were kind of like kicked out. There's, there's several points, (laughs) but there was a study in the New England Journal of Medicine on HGH about 30 years ago. And there is a famous episode of a dermatologist that went to a derm conference and said, I've been, you know, I've been prescribed high doses of HGH to optimize my HGH and look how great my skin and hair is. Um, oh. And I think that was 20 or 30 years ago. Since then, the cancer risk have kind of been rightfully equally weighted or mm-hmm. perhaps even a bit too much towards the risk and not the benefit. But 30 years ago, a lot of people were on uh, HGH therapy for that. And it can induce a hair shed. We see similar things with GHRPs mm-hmm. like tesamorelin or sermorelin, um, which are usually indicated for growth hormone deficiency or lipodystrophy, which is uh, too much fat inside the abdominal cavity. But that will speed up hair shedding but also improve the quality of your hair. You see a similar phenomenon with HCG. You have less of it, but it's really good. Yeah. Um, And (laughs) kind of a a fairly similar thing happens during pregnancy because there's a hormone called HPL, human Mm -hmm. placental lactogen. It's very similar to HGH when you compare it molecule to molecule. And it's also what happens to cause gestational diabetes. That's one reason why a lot of men that are on something called MK677 or ibutamorin mm-hmm. or any GHRP, they also develop prediabetes or even diabetic level blood markers. What ha- what's happening? I call it GHRP diabetes. It's a, essentially the same thing. It's the same pathological pathologic process that happens during gestational diabetes, except instead of being due to human placental lactogen, it's due to a GHRP like MK677. 
So is it, da- I mean, is it equally, should someone be concerned about that? It's equally reversible, okay, but equally as dangerous if it is not reversed. Interesting. Gut health. Well, actually just, and we did this the last time, but maybe we could just, you have six pillars, but I feel like you've added an extra one kind of in your, right? I added social health. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Talking with Rich Roll, he said, you need a social health pillar that's separate. Yeah, he's sensitive. Yeah. It's nice. So I agree. So I added that one. He was right. Maybe we can just quickly, because I, I, one thing I, I really appreciate, I mean, you, you can get into the weeds like nobody's business, but you really identify kind of these pillars. So maybe we could just mention, because I, I would like to kind of figure out from your point of view, you know, what feels, if things, certain things feel more important or are they all equally as important, these pillars? So can we, can we just go over your pillars of health? And we know that the seventh one is now kind of social or yeah. Diet and exercise are the first two. Mm-hmm. So dominoes is not a perfect analogy, but you need to have those two dominoes knocked over before you knock over the other ones. Mm-hmm. You can remove a domino at any point and you're not going to have the cascade work correctly. But they're the first two and they are the most important. And when things go wrong in the other pillars, it's usually because they affect diet and exercise. Sleep is the next one. I would argue that Sleep is the third most important. Um, we mentioned zone two earlier, and now I guess it's a buzzword, but, but it's great. I mean, the best two things that you can do for the aging of your cell is, we can go into the anti-aging tangent later, but is zone two cardio and get really good REM sleep. And if you have a sleep pathologies like, like sleep apnea, then you're not going to be getting good REM sleep. Past that, um, we used S's for the rest of them. So stress is one of them. You want stress to feel good. You don't want zero stress. You don't want a lot of stress. You want sunlight, cold exposure, hot exposure. Mm-hmm. That's included with that. We went into social health. We went into, I guess we didn't go into spiritual health this time. Well, we went into it last time, but yeah. the importance of your, your spiritual health. Yeah. And this is not necessarily being religious or not religious. This is just Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You have your physical needs down low, then you have your mental needs. The top is self-actualization. That's just your metaphysical need. What your purpose is beyond your body being here as an organic machine. Yeah. And it's like you're saying with even what a lot of men are experiencing is like, what should I be doing? And I I feel like that that's um, become, you know, and I appreciate kind of some of the social correction that we're, we're living in. I, I feel like that there's some pendulum parts that are kind of an overcorrection because we've, we've sort of in that overcorrection said, you know, th- things associated with masculinity are all bad, which is obviously not true. And um, we, I know that we've sort of, we're killing God a bit in our social conversation. And, and maybe for people, it doesn't have to be a guy with a white beard, but it's something greater than. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do think that these are really important to have because it does give us that meaning. Because once we get it all, whatever all is, we realize, oh, wait a second, that wasn't the point. Yeah. It, it's something much bigger than, you know, me and I. Um, mm. And I am a Christian, but I also don't believe that you have to be a Christian to have optimal spiritual health. Right. You can still explain your self-actualization or why you're here beyond your physical body in many ways that are not going to affect the other aspects of your health. I just know that if you don't have a good way to explain that, 
then it can also cascade through the other aspects of your health and be very harmful. Yeah. And, and sometimes in just in being like, we can sit here and talk about hormones and, and, and such, and really drill down. The whole thing is a miracle. The fact that you're sitting there and you're you, if we don't have those opportunities to notice these miracles um, and even the miracle to sort of take care of the, I mean, the body is extraordinary what it's able to do. And I don't mean here's my butt on Instagram. I mean, the body, what it can do is just amazing. It's for me, it's like, I, I hope I don't ever lose, you know, what's, what is so perfect about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's one of the really interesting things about living in modern times when the buzzwords are artificial intelligence Mm -hmm. and machine learning. I always think of my friend and colleague, Dr. Taylor Martin, because he points out that those intelligences and machine learning, he's a data scientist and a physician, but they're only as good as the input that you put into them. And as these things are developing, humans are losing the ability of a lot of area of their brains. For example, if you look at the average size of the hippocampus, that's part of the emotional system, but also helps with direction. We are losing a lot of the size and function of that area. And we are likely to lose more and more of it as time goes on, maybe Neuralink will save us all. Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? But it's difficult to live in a time where the miracle of what the human brain is capable of is slowly being lost. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I think about that. Just, you know, I'm a lot older than you. And I, I used to, I joke with Larry because his sense of direction is very good. Obviously he's connected to all, you know, the direction of the wind and the water and, you know, it's all, yeah. where's east, the sun and, you know, and such. And I, and I think about like when we go somewhere sometimes and I, and I'm like, oh, we used to use the Thomas guide or you would stop the joke about asking for directions. You know, I don't know how many columns of uh, cartoons have been written about a guy not asking for directions and the yeah. wife just like ask for directions, but that we don't, we just plug it in and we trust it, you know, and off we go. So now that we've covered the pillars and we talked about nutrition and, and movement, I, I would like, you know, I'm seeing over and over the health of your microbiome, your gut. It just is one of the big players at the table. Um, it's certainly complicated. Are you in your practice seeing how this really can impact young men's hormones and the efficiency or the, you know, kind of mm-hmm. the health of them? Yeah. So um, a lot of times people ask me for direct examples. One direct example <laughs> is estrogens are metabolized in three main ways, ubiquitination, So adding a ubiquitin group, adding a sulfate group, and glucuronidation. And glucuronidation takes place mostly with estrogens, but a little tiny bit with androgens, but almost half of estrogens are metabolized this way. And the microbiota in your gut affect the level of an enzyme called glucuronidase. And this beta-glucuronidase enzyme will regulate how much glucuronidation is taking place. So there's an analogy, it's called the estrogen bathtub analogy. But that's where your estrogen goes down the estrogen sink. And then when it's in your gut, it's in the pipe. And then after it's excreted, that's when it's actually excreted from the body because it can actually be reabsorbed. So I would posit that you can draw a pipe, another pipe that goes back into the bathtub. And then there's actually three drains, not just one drain. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit of a complicated bathtub. Yeah. But that is one way that your gut microbiome will directly affect your hormone balance because you can retain estrogen. 
The same intrahepatic recirculation is how you can reabsorb bilirubin um, or other molecules in the gut, potentially uric acid, bile, bile acids as well. Wait, when you say uric acid, reabsorb it, me, meaning mitigate the negative impact of it or? Uric acid and many other things, for example, bilirubin can be excreted both in the gut mm -hmm. and renally. So in urine and in stool. And a lot of things that are excreted for the first time through the liver are then reabsorbed later in the gut and then put back into the bathtub, estrogen included in that situation. And then they have to be excreted again. Uh, so, it, so what you're saying is that the health of the gut, you know, you don't, there's certain things you don't really want to reabsorb. Mm -hmm. You want to get rid of them. Is that not right? Correct. Okay. Yeah. So reabsorption sure. is not always bad, but often it is. Yeah. Certain microbiota in the gut, for example, if you have an overgrowth of EHEC or ETEC, which are types of pathogenic E. coli, mm -hmm. that will certainly affect your level of glucuronidation through the body, which can make it difficult to excrete estrogen. GLP-1s also affect this. Mm -hmm. Metformin can also significantly affect your gut microbiome as well. And then we're... In a good or bad way? Because everyone talks about how great metformin is in certain ways. In both. Okay. Yep. Usually in a good way, unless it causes GI symptoms or diarrhea, okay. which it very often does. Interesting. So well, it is like concrete. Yeah. Interesting about, thing about metformin is it has multiple different mechanisms of action. Mm -hmm. So it's going to somewhat affect your gut microbiome, but it's going to affect your uh, insulin sensitivity. They used to call them GLUT2 and GLUT4, but they've renamed them. So they're different transporter enzymes. So it affects your glucose uptake. It also affects your shbg so it can slightly increase your shbg if it's very low some of that's just related to the amount of insulin binding the insulin receptor hepatically and it also affects both your igf1 and your one of your igf binding peptides so basically affects the free level of circulating igf1 which think of that as the level of growth hormone through your body which can be too high and too low so you're affecting so many different things with one medication. Mm -hmm. It's not a very easy thing to manage, especially if you're not also checking those things. Right. Like you just take it and then you like leave it at that. So let's say someone goes, well, I'm trying, you know, I'm eating my fiber and I, I try to take a prebiotic or probiotic or whatever. Um, but to get it, do you test people's microbiomes? Do you have a way? Because, you know, that is, it is a, it's a complex yeah. zone. And then people going like, oh, I'm doing, I'm doing this stuff for my gut. It's like, are you? Like, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's no perfect way to check your gut microbiome because it's contiguous with the rest of your microbiome. I just did a podcast with Dr. Thomas Hitchcock, mm -hmm. who has a PhD in genetics, and he's very well versed in the microbiome. But he does mostly skin microbiome. And then, of course, you have microbiome on, your, on, on mucosa, for example, the eye or in the mouth, and there's ways to test that. Mm -hmm. And then you can get biopsies, and some gastroenterologists do these biopsies. But, for example, if you get an endoscopy, you can do a biopsy to look for H. pylori, mm -hmm. which is not necessarily all bad. In fact, high levels are associated with less Crohn's disease and less asthma and allergies. And you can also get a biopsy that's in your stomach. You can also get a biopsy in the small intestine. You can also get a biopsy in the large intestine. And then you can also check the microbiome in your stool, which is basically the that's best right. we have right now. And it's highly variable, but it can be useful in some individuals 
Just like if you're checking, the analogy I make is you have an aquarium or a terrarium and you drain your fish tank. So checking what's in the silt or checking what's drained in the fish tank can kind of give you an idea, mm. but it varies quite a bit from day to day. But that being said, the level of cholesterol in our blood or the level of lipoproteins also varies a lot day to day. So do you, what do you do? What test would you do? The, the, what your elimination would For, be how you would check it? As far as looking to see what your yeah, microbiota like is. Yeah, how you're doing. Occasionally I do stool tests. Mm -hmm. Occasionally gastroenterologists that I work with will actually mm -hmm. do biopsy and look for it. Occasionally I do H. pylori tests as well. Um, you can do a breath test or a stool test or a biopsy. The blood test for H. pylori is um, not really clinically applicable. And then occasionally I do oral microbiome tests. Well, there's one called a bristle that uh, Chris Stranderberg introduced me to. But if you, if a guy has some real gut issues, can that really throw his hormones out of whack? And if you can get that house in order, can it sort of help the downstream effect on that? It can. One of the mechanisms is estrogen, as we mentioned, mm -hmm. but um, one of the other mechanisms is it's going to affect your micronutrient absorption. So if you have Crohn's or right. chronic diarrhea, then it's likely that, let's say you're also iron deficient and you're B12 deficient and you don't have good dopaminergic tone or serotonergic tone, and that throws everything else off. Now let's be Debbie Downers for a minute. Weed and alcohol, we won't get into other recreational yeah. drugs. Let's just stay there. Um, can this mess up your... I mean, I love asking questions <laughs> I know the answer to, but yeah. I still, you know, it's interesting. It, it does fascinate me. And again, I have no judgment. Like if people want to just yeehaw it all they want, it's totally, I'm like, knock yourself out. But if they're really concerned or interested in supporting their hormones, let's say in overall health, can we talk about the impact of regular use of things like alcohol and marijuana? Yeah, regular alcohol use certainly upregulates aromatization, so conversion of testosterone to estrogen, especially when you consume higher amounts of alcohol. Is this one where, is like beer uh, or is hard, like tequila better? Like, do we know, or is it just kind of a no-go? Um, if it has more carbohydrates in it, it has more calories. Uh -huh. And the caloric content of alcohol is one of the main reasons why it is not optimal to regularly consume. So fats have nine kilocalories per gram, alcohols have seven, and then carbs and proteins have four. So if you're thinking about like, you know, let's say you consume four drinks every evening, and then you compare the calories of that, which is probably about 400 calories, how many grams of fat could you consume for that amount of calories? Quite a bit. Right. And does it mess? Let's, let's just get to it because sometimes I feel like you got to talk their language. Would it, could it mess up the size of your muscles if you drank alcohol? At higher doses, it certainly does. Mm -hmm. So you have increased muscle protein degradation, but especially decreased muscle protein synthesis when you consume very high amounts of alcohol. If you consume it once every two weeks, even if you drink, let's say three alcoholic beverages or even four alcoholic beverages, once every two weeks or once every month, that's not going to have a significant effect. It's going to have a probably a clinically insignificant effect, but a statistically significant effect. Um, but if you do that every day, then it yeah. certainly is. And do we know anything about weed? Does that less blood flow to the brain? I heard that's kind of 
I heard that that. Cannabinoids are interesting. Smoked cannabis increases prolactin um, significantly more than non-smoked cannabis. It's unknown how much of that is the smoke or how much of that is the culmination of the smoke and the cannabinoids, but you have THC and CBD. Mm -hmm. And there's also endocannabinoids. For example, PEA, um, polyethanolamide is a fatty acid, uh, a naturally occurring fatty acid. Lots of it, I think, is in safflower oil, but that is also an endocannabinoid receptor agonist. And that is not particularly hormonal, hormonally active. But a lot of times cannabinoids, any of the three, are going to have effects on your sleep. They can decrease the memory of dreams, which can be both good and bad. Um, but uh, in general, if you have a very high prolactin, it's kind of the same effect that you can get from very frequent masturbation, which can be another problem as well, because that is kind of like having a mini seizure. I think there was a philosopher <laughs> that said, um, I forget what philosopher said it, somebody in the, in the comments I'm sure we'll find, but there was a philosopher that said um, an orgasm is like a small seizure with a, a period of clarity afterward. But prolactin is increased after both. That's one of the ways that we differentiate seizure from pseudo-seizure is you have a tonic-clonic seizure, you expect an increase in prolactin. Mm -hmm. And that can decrease, prolactin decreases LH release from the pituitary, so that can affect your testosterone if it's very frequent. And it also, again, gives you that negative direction at a reward that is probably not what you want to do consistently. I, I feel like a whole world's built on that though. <laughs> Yeah. So I guess you can make the case that um, there, there's a very different stimulus when it comes to sex. Uh, for example, sex, especially for the purpose of procreation. Yeah. Um, if Are we calling sex making love then? Or are we saying like baby making sex? Like my temperature's up, get home now? Or like, hey, I'm in this relationship and we're open to having babies. The latter yeah. Okay. Sex with another individual for any purpose. Okay. <laughs> if if that was not a strong, like positive feedback stimulus, right. then we would be extinct as a species. Because um, the fact of the matter is most pregnancies are not planned. A lot of unplanned pregnancies are wanted, but most are not planned. And they just happen to kind of be secondary to the very strong positive feedback stimulus of sex. And now, especially compared to time in the past, orgasm without sex, for example, masturbation, especially masturbation with porn, is, a, I guess, more heavily sought out compared to sex than it has been. Right. Well, and it's so, everything's so readily available. It's so interesting, isn't it? Like these mechanisms that we have in place biologically, mm -hmm. the way that they've just turned against us. So whatever, eating everything that you can get your hands on mm -hmm. when it's available but we didn't realize we were going to have giant grocery stores mm. and, you know, porn at yep. a click of a swipe of a, that's. Effort and aggression are the same. So there is a, a deleterious aspect to aggression that many, especially young people can find themselves in. And there's also a way to use aggression and effort to achieve positive things. I think that's a really good point. Now they just make really mean comments, but they didn't do anything with it. Yep. Yeah. I just want to go back to the gut really second. Let really quickly, if somebody, let's say you, for whatever reason, had to take a real round of antibiotics and you know, you just kind of gassed out your microbiome a little bit. 
Do you do anything for you personally to support your gut health uh, besides, you know, the pillars? Um, and then if you sort of felt like you got behind because of an unavoidable prescription, let's say, would you do anything to reboot? Mm-hmm. During, so back to the aquarium analogy, you have prebiotics, that's like your fish food. You have probiotics, that's your fish, and you have postbiotics. That's what your fish produce that are often beneficial for the environment. And when you have when you take an antibiotic, depending on which antibiotic, it's going mm-hmm. to kill some good fish and some bad fish. Hopefully, um, your physician has chosen ones that will kill mostly bad fish and not too many good fish. But that's one of the best periods of time when it comes to clinical evidence for probiotic use is after an antibiotic course. I usually recommend people take probiotics and then if they need it prebiotics and if they need it is if they're not getting in their diet Mm -hmm. and sometimes also postbiotics dr hitchcock said about 80 percent of over-the-counter probiotics don't have any active culture in it so and i would believe him he he's the expert um so where do where do you get them where do you find them um, i don't have any specific brand recommendation but personally occasionally i will use the seed probiotic which is a prebiotic capsule occasionally i'll also use spore-based probiotics um Omega uh, spore is one variety of those. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the Garden of Life raw probiotics seem very reasonable to use. Is that use. refrigerated, that one? Some of them are, some right. of them are not. Okay. Probiotics do not necessarily have to be refrigerated. But all that being said, my favorite probiotics are food probiotics. So like kimchi and mm-hmm. like real sauerkraut or uh, fermented peppers. There's lots of good uh, kombucha, kefir. There's a lot of varieties of good live probiotics in food. Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, I think what's happened, which is so great, we brought attention around uh, gut health and prebiotics, probiotics, but then it just sounds like noise. It's yeah. like, what do you mean? You know, and yep. uh, my kids, one of my kids eats natto mm-hmm. and it's like, oh, have you ever had natto? I have not. I've heard it can be rough. It is. She loves it because she was introduced to it early, um, but ap- apparently it's an incredible uh, it's incredible for your gut. So um, going back to hormones, I want to n- push along just a little bit to maybe someone a little older, you know, whatever, 50s, 60s, 70s, and they are looking into doing some t- type of, you know, hormone replacement. I, you know, we're talking about kind of some of the risk reward. And going through the process, they get their blood work done. They, you know, they sort of look at it. How do you think what would be the way for them to decide, you know what, this is a, a good idea. Maybe their doctor doesn't spell it out for them as well as you're able to. What are the kind of the columns that you'd be looking at to make that decision if they sort of had to figure it out for themselves? One of the first things we ask a patient is what their goals are. So it is very reasonable to have an accurate and honest assessment can you achieve this goal regardless of what you do? Mm. Can you achieve this goal with any therapy or medication if it might be indicated? And can you achieve it without that? So depending on what the answers to those questions are, and also depending on how important that goal is to the patient, that can make them a better or a worse candidate for uh, something like hormone replacement. Mm -hmm. If they have a, uh, you know, like, a low level, but it's not deficient and they have no symptoms versus someone who has a, the same exact level, low, still not deficient, 
let's call it a total testosterone of 350. Different academic societies have different cutoffs, by the way. Mm -hmm. Some societies like it to be you know, truly deficient. Uh, uh, regardless of the free testosterone or SHBG, they want total testosterone to be less than, say, 260s multiple times. Whereas some societies, the AUAs, the Urologist Society, have a, a much higher cutoff, even as a society recommendation. But at the end of the day, it's just individualized medicine. In fact, I think I saw Mayo Clinic name one of their new clinics individualized medicine, yeah. um, which that's what Gillette Health's clinic is also named. Yeah. Is that how, do you notice that? You noticed it? You're like, oh, that's an interesting name, people. Yeah, I thought, great name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's really where medicine is going is, is. Um, not by the cutoff. Because if you look at the pyramid of evidence-based medicine, expert recommendation is at the bottom and it's very good to know what the expert recommendation is, both as a patient and a healthcare provider. But the higher levels of evidence are things like systematic reviews or meta-analyses or randomized controlled trials, um, significantly above that. So you're thinking about the situation that the individual patient is in, and then you take those two individuals that both have, let's say, a total testosterone of 350. One of them is severely symptomatic. One of them has no symptoms. Mm. And the individual with more symptoms is a much better candidate male, uh, andropause, a lot of guys. And I, and I, you know, I'm, um, I, because I've been married for a long time to a really good person who happens to be a male. Um, I've become, um, more, even more over time, an advocate of men because I've met so many good ones and that do represent sort of the, the really positive traits of even really hyper-masculinity. We have a ton of military guys that come here and train mm -hmm. and, you know, they'd be the first to help somebody or, you know, protect somebody or yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, like, you know, however you want to say it. So I, I feel like sometimes guys don't get the care the way women do because we talk about it more. I think we, I think women have a different load in a different way that is uniquely challenging and wonderful to who we, to our walk in this world. But I feel like guys sort of don't, won't say like, I'm tired. It's been hard for me to maybe, and I don't mean just throw Viagra at it. Like it's the erection is changing or is different. Men don't realize that they too have kind of a menopause. Yeah. Um, andropause is slower. So it has what I would call an insidious onset and it can be um, varied. So some men have very, very late andropause. Some men have very, very early andropause. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people don't have symptoms and they could be hypogonadal and they could have low estrogen, which is kind of like the most concerning combination. And they wouldn't even know it. So um, the, the phenomenon that you described of men not wanting to check or men not seeking help, partly because they are very masculine and they don't want to be perceived as needing help, that's what I call the number one thing harming men's health. Because yeah. you don't know what you don't know. And at the very least, you need to take your machine. And again, we're just organic machines. Take it in for preventive maintenance and at least get a comprehensive check of what's going on because fixing something now can prevent something catastrophic from happening in the future. So we, we, we sort of said, hey, listen, if you're 18 and you're able and you can get a baseline, awesome. Because that's in a way some kind of notion of optimal. Like you haven't really wrecked your machine usually too much and not too much has happened. You're getting a little snapshot. What is the invitation any different for, and let's, let's put um, having children on the side plate. Let's just talk, talk about their own isolated health. 
in their 20s? Is there a different invitation or is it just, hey, get your blood work done once a year? And is it in your 30s? Is it, hey, maybe ramp it up to twice a year if you can and so forth? Like, what is that invitation for you to do, to kind of just stay on top of that? Yeah, this is an interesting question because the average individual in a developed country has a pathology, for example, metabolic syndrome or insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. So the average individual likely does need labs more often and at least has several lifestyle interventions, if not supplements and medications that can, they can temporarily use as tools to intervene. So the average person probably needs labs twice a year, maybe even three times a year. The average person who is truly healthy, by the way, some studies say that 6% of the population of the United States is um, truly metabolically healthy. So that means they're just not on the edge of every, you know, known thing that's about to happen, you know, some kind of... Yeah. I think they defined it as <laughs> um, a fasting insulin, an mm -hmm. elevated A1C, a elevated fasting glucose, or dyslipidemia which is um, a high LDL. So it's not a perfect definition of metabolic health, but it's pretty decent. But it's certainly concerning that only 6% of the population meets those criteria. Mm -hmm. If you happen to be in the 6%, getting very basic labs every year is more than enough. But that being said, some people that will affect their quality of life, it, there's kind of like four boxes you can be in. You can check things to see if they're wrong. So you can check yes or check no, and then will you do something about it? So ideally, you will check to see if there's something wrong and you will do something about it. But if you know you're not going to do anything about it, you actually might not want to check to see if anything's wrong. Because then it will just, you know, if you you absolutely are stubborn and you won't, you will not do anything about it. There's lots of case studies that have been reported, you know, people that have prolactinomas or a tumor that's producing prolactin. And they're recommending all these medications and they're saying, you're going to need a surgery and you're going to start having visual changes if you don't take the medicine. They still don't take the medicine and then they start to have visual changes. So having that discussion is important. But for you know your average individual, let's say they have obesity and insulin resistance and prediabetes, they don't necessarily have to do something. They would kind of be like the owner of the car that's willing to just get the tires rotated and the oil changed, mm -hmm. but they will not do anything else for preventive maintenance. Again, as somebody who's seeing people all the time, whether it's through telemedicine or in person, I'm always, I'm always so intrigued about how we, why we get in our own way. And there, I can't help but think sometimes, especially after, you know, having a lots of conversations around this and being around a lot of people that it's like that chicken and egg thing. Like, do we do things in our lifestyle that keep us emotionally from being able to do something about our lifestyle. It's like, did our lifestyle mess up our emotional capacity to even get to the place to make the change? Yeah, there, it can definitely go both ways. And sometimes both things can be dysregulated at once. But what I do know is that for men that are coming to see me, very often it is their wife or a female in their life mm -hmm. that has said, you have to go into the doctor now. So that's a positive social interaction right. that uh, maybe they're just looking for an excuse or maybe they yeah. don't want to oh, say- she's been bugging me. Yeah, she's yeah, been bugging me. But they know me. they need to. Yeah, it's like, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to be a man about this. I don't actually care, but I had to come in because she made me. Yeah, you know. 
kind of maker. I, I do think it's, I was talking to a friend of mine and I'm, I'm curious what you see when you deal with men, because women talk about their feelings quite a bit. I feel we talk about having it all. Like we, we get in there because I was talking to a friend of mine actually prior to t- speaking with you. And she was saying, well, you know, you should ask, and she's been in a long marriage, um, you know, about libido. And I go, besides, you know, stress and all these things. And I said, yes, but also how about this as a thought as a partner to somebody, you could be like, Hey, good morning. It's really nice to see you. Hey, I appreciate you. Hey, you look good. And I think that we never actually think that that has a reverse impact back on even things like the male libido, you know, kind of finding the way to elevate them in that way. Besides they kill it at work and bring home a paycheck. It's like, I don't know. Do you see maybe that where, people that are in a kind of um, that upcycle dynamic with a partner that that does support them in a serious, in a blood, you can see it in their blood work way. Yeah, I certainly think so. I was listening to a podcast. I think it was Lex Friedman's podcast Uh and he was discussing the situation in a relationship or in a marriage that almost certainly leads to divorce. And the, I guess the takeaway was lack of like a complete lack of appreciation i don't remember the exact term that they Mm -hmm. used but if there is no appreciation left that will likely lead to divorce whereas if there is like an an optimal level of understanding of whatever role that those people have in their relationship then that will lead to uh improved likely improved libido, mm-hmm. or maybe that just leads to them being more likely to go to the doctor and being okay with it, or being more likely to have an open discussion about emotions. It's kind of like a a headway or a way in mm. to the male mind. Yeah. And I, I think it hasn't, it gets explored as this kind of agro testosterone equals aggression and kind of all these things instead of there's some nuance around it and complication and also the sort of high level of sensitivity of men that, um, you know, how do you get in there and weirdly protect them at the same time? You know, I always joke and I'll talk out of school for a second. Like if Laird was here sick on the couch, let's say, never happens, Laird never gets sick. And the phone rang and his buddy was like, hey, is Laird there? I'd be like, no, he's not. Cause I'm not gonna show his weakness. I'm there to fortify him you know, with, cause if they show you, it's like this weird thing. So I, I often, I, I often think about sometimes we don't know how to understand how it's both happening simultaneously all the time with, with men, you know, and I, I don't know, you, you must see a lot. So, well, we, I, I feel like we, we made some grounds this time and we, it was hope, hopefully a little different than last time. Yeah, certainly. And we didn't have to talk about women so much. But um, Dr. Kyle Gillette, can, first of all, I think, I mean, I wanted to talk actually about Tangat Ali because Laird was introduced to it by Huberman, actually. Maybe we could just talk about that as a supplement because it is sort of an interesting supplement. Yeah. Sorry, um, I'm throwing you one last thing. No, uh, completely fine. This is a very common question as well. Tongkat Ali, also known as Long Jack, mm-hmm. is an herbal medication. It's from Southeast Asia, so Indonesia and Malaysia. 
And it has an interesting mechanism of action. We used to think that it was an estrogen receptor modulator, which is not as much. We used to think it's an aromatase inhibitor, which there's also not great evidence that it's an aromatase inhibitor. But it certainly helps upregulate certain enzymes in the steroidogenesis cascade, both in the gonads and in the adrenals. Similar enzymes that insulin and IGF-1 help upregulate. So if you have lower DHEA sulfate, um, that's another ex- a sign that these enzymes can be of low activity. Its active ingredient is called uricominones, and it probably also has active ingredients in its uripeptides, but it's also a phytoandrogen. So people are familiar with how soy can be a phyto, a weak phytoestrogen, probably not clinically significant in low quantities, by the way. But Tonkat can be a phytoandrogen. So even independent of its activity, um, it likely binds to the androgen receptor or upregulates gene transcription of the androgen receptor to give more of that androgenic feeling. Mm-hmm. So for a lot of individuals that have low insulin, low IGF-1, um, for example, if you're losing a lot of body weight or you're very, very lean, Tonkat could be a great addition. Whereas for some other people, likely its only benefit is its phytoandrogen benefit. Mm-hmm. I also think that one of its ingredients, perhaps in one of the other saponins that's um, Uricominone is a type of uripeptide, which is a type of saponin, but I think it's also a stimulant. So I do recommend people take it in the morning mm-hmm. when they first start taking it. That way they don't have insomnia. And do you partner it with another supplement sometimes? Occasionally you do. Creatine is my second favorite testosterone optimization you, supplement. You just smiled right now when you say creatine. You really like creatine. That's cute. Yeah, I like, I like creatine. <laughs> I'll keep the extra five yeah. for it. Okay. And then my next favorites are vitamin D, zinc, selenium, and magnesium. But after that, specifically for people that have low LH receptor sensitivity mm-hmm. or just a low level of LH, Fidoja is occasionally a good add-on. Mm-hmm. Say occasionally because a year ago or two years ago, I'd say, you know, nobody knows about the supplement. It's super underrated. And now I think everybody knows about the supplement. Mm-hmm. Um, it is so popular now that it has slowly become overrated just because there's not hu- there's not human data on there's this. There's no data. <laughs> Other than the anecdotal data of hundreds of years in, of use in herbal medicine, oh. which definitely counts for something. But one of the things I like about it is it has a well-defined mechanism of action. So it is not uncommon to see someone's LH go up significantly when they start Fidoja. So for whatever reason, your LH might be low. That could be a reasonable addition to add Fidoja, even if it's temporary. In uh, rodent models, which is what we call preclinical data, it can increase ALKFOS and GGT, which is gamma glutamyl transferase, two enzymes that are present in the gonads and in the liver. So in patients, especially if they're on high doses of Fidoja, which is above 300 milligrams, I do check those two markers to make sure that they have not gone out of range. I've been doing that for almost two years now, and I hardly ever see those two out of range in humans. Mm-hmm. Although when you look at the dose equivalency, there's rodent to human dose equivalencies. Theoretically, it could start going out of range at 300 migs. So that's why I say start at 300 per day, unless you're checking your labs. Do you forget anything? Yes. You do? It's ama- it must be amazing to be able to remember all that. It's easy to remember something when you have an adrenaline spike or when you're extremely excited about something. So that's kind of um, one of the 
best ways to learn. People do this in a lot of different ways. I don't recommend like, you know, slapping your face or running a sprint after every time, but they're um, certainly studying things that you really enjoy and not doing it continuously is very helpful. Mm. So maybe you sit down and study something and read about something and then go for a walk outside or study something and then talk to a friend about it. Highly recommend it, especially if you're excited about a certain study or you find, you know, new clinical data, a new systematic review has been launched, then you're very likely to remember that just because you're excited. Yeah. Does your wife pretend to be excited about science and stuff like that? Some of it, she is legitimately excited. <laughs> and then some of it, um, she says uh, that I should stop talking about it because it is annoying. <laughs> I think it's awesome. Well, Dr. Kyle Gillette, I really, I, I really appreciate you. And, you know, I'm always, uh, it's always really, imagine some, you know, I have to talk to people like you, uh, I get to, I'm excited to, but you're always like, oh my gosh, you know, like, how are we going to enter? I have to try to understand what they're saying. Um, I'm also interested selfishly, you know, it's like all of the things, but just having you as a resource to, you know, make things so clear is really a gift and that you're willing to talk about it and share. Is there anything I forgot that feels especially important to you that I didn't cover today that it occurs to you? I don't believe so. Uh, just to re reiterate the point, what one of the number one things is that's harming men's health is the hesitancy to talk about or seek a solution to have optimal health. Yeah. It's not a weakness to go, hey, I, I let's just take a look or maybe I'm not feeling my best and uh, and get a look. Can people still, even if they don't live in your area, are they able to become patients of yours still? Or are you, is that off the table? They are. It does depend on where they live. And regardless of where they live, I do like to see everybody in person mm. when possible. That kind of an aside to that is, uh, I wrote an article about telemedicine with my friend Alec McCarthy in the MSL journal, mm -hmm. but there is certainly an emerging role of telemedicine in the care of the patient. It is almost always better to see them in person when possible. But the alternative to telemedicine is often no medical care at all. So the patient population that's served by that is underserved regardless of where they live. Mm -hmm. So a combination of in-person visits and telemedicine visits is always best. And we'll put in the show notes how they can find you. And we obviously know the name of your clinic since, you know, it's double, it's double named. Yeah. I wanted to name it something else. And then a few of my good friends said, just name it after your last name. That makes sense. It's what people search for. Oh, absolutely. All right. Dr. Kyle Gillette. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you want to learn more, there is a ton of valuable information on my website. Head to the link in the show notes and click gabbyreese.com to find a full breakdown with helpful links to studies, research, books, products, and more. Stay tuned for a bonus episode coming this Thursday where I go deeper on one of the topics that really resonated with me. If you have any questions for my guests or even myself, please send them to at gabbyreese on Instagram. If you feel inspired, please hit the follow button, leave a rating, and a comment. It not only helps me, it really helps the show grow and reach new listeners.